0: And good morning. This passage uh, fits amazingly well with the entire theme of our worship time this morning. The victory that has been won for us in Christ, by Christ. This is uh one of many passages that I call a road to Emmaus passage. Because when Jesus was walking after he was raised from the dead with those two men on the road to Emmaus he told them all about himself starting with Moses and the prophets and this is one of those passages that I believe vividly points to Jesus Christ. Imagine that you're the defendant in a court case, a very serious case, and you're sitting in a room waiting to be escorted into the courtroom and there's a knock at the door and You say, come in, and the person walks in, and the person who does walk in is the prosecutor. And he's not just any prosecutor, he's the district attorney. He's the one that all the other prosecutors work for. And he he puts his hand on your shoulder, and he walks you into the courtroom, and then when you get there, he's still standing right beside you in front of the judge. And he has a big smirk on his face like he's holding a royal flush, and you look over at him and you notice a lapel pen and it says, I'm the accuser and I really like my job. The only other people you see are the bailiffs who are there waiting to do the judge's bidding if they, if he tells them to carry you away and some of your friends. There's no defense attorney because the culture in which you live requires you to argue argue your own case in courts of law. And by the way, the case against you happens to be ironclad. Considering all of those things, how would you feel about the potential outcome of this proceeding? As the fourth vision that God gave to Zechariah begins at the beginning of chapter 3, Zechariah is beholding a heavenly courtroom scene. And as he surveys the courtroom, he sees the defendant, Joshua, the high priest. He sees the judge, who's called the angel or messenger of Yahweh. And that's the one who speaks throughout the passage as Yahweh. He sees the accuser, whose name means the accuser. And that's the prosecutor. And he sees the the angelic servants of the judge, the bailiffs, if you will. And then finally he sees Joshua's friends, who in this situation end up being co-defendants with him, as we will see. Joshua is identified in the beginning of verse 1 as the high priest. And we need to understand a couple of things about the role and assignment of high priests in the Old Testament to, to see what's going on here. The high priest was the mediator between God and God's people in the most important ceremonies that took place at the temple. And his mediation went in two directions. He represented the people in the eyes of God, and he represented God in the eyes of the people. That's what a mediator does. In Exodus 28, when you look at the the description of the clothing of the high priest, you see that... One of those articles of clothing was an ephod and it had two shoulder pieces and on each shoulder piece was an onyx stone with the names of six tribes of Israel engraved on one and the other six engraved on the other. And what did that mean? Well, Exodus 28.12 explains it this way. It says, You shall put two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And what's memorial? Throughout the Old Testament, a memorial is a an attention-getter, a reminder. It doesn't mean that anyone is necessarily forgotten. It just means that their attention is being drawn to this reality by a symbol. The verse goes on, it says, And Aaron, who was the first high priest, shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for a memorial. See, in a symbolic sense... God saw the people through the priest. He saw the people embodied in the person of the priest. Now another piece of the priestly garments was the breastpiece of judgment that went over the chest and over the heart of the priest. That breast piece was put together like a pouch. It was folded on the bottom and stitched up on the sides. And inside of it were the Urim and Thummim, which by which God revealed His will to His people on various matters, all the way up through the time of King David and, and other kings. Exodus 28:30 says, "You shall put the breastpiece in the breastpiece of judgment, the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord, and Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually." I believe the breast piece pictures the other side of the priest's mediatorial role. When God has something to say to the people, He says it through the high priest and through the urim and thummim that are on His, that are in front of His heart. And so, the high priest represents God in the eyes of the people. Now, the reason I point all that this out is because I believe that, that this passage divides up into those two sides of the high priest's mediation. Verses 1 through 5 focus on the priest's representation of the people, the priest standing in the place of the people of God. And verses 6 through 10 focus on the priest standing in the place of God for the people. Does that make sense so far? Okay. And I think you'll see how that, how that breakdown works out. First in verses one through five, Joshua is representing the people of God. He's standing before the judge, the one called the angel or messenger of Yahweh. And that person comes up throughout these visions. I've said before that I believe very strongly that the angel of Yahweh is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, before his incarnation. I believe that's borne out by the by the way, in the fact that when Satan brings accusations against the people of God, he doesn't go through other people, he goes to God. Uh Eugene Merrill in his commentary says the adversary Satan always argues his case before God not a representative of God as the very similar scene in the prologue of Job establishes beyond doubt and in Revelation uh, Revelation 12.10 Satan is called the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before God day and night so I believe the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh And he speaks as Yahweh throughout the passage. So that's the judge. And then the prosecutor is Satan. And he's standing, not at the prosecutor's table, he's standing at the right hand of Joshua. And there's bitter irony in that. Because throughout the Old Testament, the person who stands or sits at your right hand is your your companion. He's your friend. He's not someone who is... Standing against you, but in this case, Satan is standing in very close proximity to the one that he's, that he's eager to accuse. And it's important to recognize that Joshua is not the isolated target of Satan's accusations in this passage. See, it's all about representation. Satan is, is chomping at the bit to bring his accusation against this man because this man represents all of God's people and Satan wants to shoot them all down in one fell swoop the broader context of scripture tells us that uh, that is that is a task in which Satan has delighted throughout history pointed out revelation 12:10 satan's called the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before our god day and night and i believe that's still going on in some manner Satan continues to hurl accusations against us before God. But this tribunal doesn't go according to Satan's plan, not at all. Verses 2 and 3, we see that before Satan even speaks a word, before any accusation comes out of his mouth, the judge speaks. And the Lord said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? When the angel of Yahweh says, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, Satan, I don't believe he's referring only to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I believe he is doing that. He's saying, I've chosen those who will dwell in this place. But he's also saying, I've chosen this place. We talked about that some last couple of weeks. I believe he's referring to, God is referring to his very long standing and irreversible promise to dwell with that people in that place. And he will redeem both. When God rebukes Satan, he adds, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? It's as if he's saying to Satan, Do you really think that I'm not going to do what I declared from before the foundations of the world that I would do? This man who is standing before us, this high priest, whose defilement you're gloating over, is mine. And the people in whose place he is standing are mine. I have plucked them from the fire by my own. By the way, what happens to a piece of coal if you leave it in the fire? It becomes ash. Its destiny is is fixed as long as it's in the fire. It's not like it's neutral. It's not like it might just hop out of the fire. If no one intervenes, it will become ash. (laughs) And unless God plucks us out of the fire, that's what happens. We are headed on a direct path to destruction. Now the sequence of events in this vision is surprising and it's very important. When does God declare that Joshua is a brand plucked from the fire? Before he cleanses him or after he cleanses him? Well, verse 3 comes after verse 2, which is a pretty common pattern. And verse 3 says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And that's after God said, this one is mine. Here's a man whose clothes are covered with filth. And you know what the word filth means in this passage? It means excrement, dung. And he's standing in front of the one who is the source of all purity, in whom there is no darkness, no corruption whatsoever. And that very judge advocates for Joshua while he is still in his uncleanness. And that's because God's advocacy for his people isn't about us. It's about him. It's not based on our character. It's based on his character. In this vision, God isn't arguing Joshua's merits with Satan. He's not saying, Satan, I rebuke you because you've got this all wrong. I'm going to prove to you that this man standing before you doesn't deserve your accusations. That's not what's going on here. It's very important that we don't diminish or misrepresent the actual guilt that is being set before us here. This high priest is defiled at the highest level imaginable under the law when it came to cleanness or uncleanness. He is standing in his defilement before the God of heaven and earth. And Joshua's friends are co-defendants because their destiny is tied up in his. He's their representative. This is a repulsive picture of uncleanness. But the ritual external uncleanness is not the end of the story in fact it's just a symbol of something else and that is the sin that is in Joshua's heart and you know how I know that because in the next verse when God when Yahweh declares that he has removed that uncleanness the word he uses is the word for sin the predominant word for sin throughout the Old Testament I've removed your iniquity from you." Joshua was unclean inside and out. And the only hope that he had going into God's courtroom and the only hope that he needed going into God's courtroom was God's choosing. God's declared intention to cleanse him, which is entirely based on God. Romans 8, right after Paul lays out for us God's decree from eternity past, to call and justify and glorify a people that he will conform to the image of his Son, a people that he will make fellow heirs with his Son. Paul then says in verses 31 to 34, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, who's worthy to bring a charge against God's elect? God. And it says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. It's an amazing answer to that question. And then Paul says, Who is the one who condemns? And the answer is, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The only man who has ever been worthy to pass judgment on the sin of other men is the one who died to take our sin away and who intercedes even now. Now, Satan stands before the judgment seat of God, striving day after day to come up with an accusation against God's people that will stick. And one of the things you come to know about Satan as you study the Scriptures is he has a very high frustration tolerance. Because this is as futile an endeavor as anyone could ever imagine. See, God's choosing was settled before the foundations of the world. God decreed that he would call out a people and he would make that people clean before the first accusation was ever raised against them before the court was ever in session in verses 4 and 5 Joshua is made clean and how does he get turned from, un- from unclean to clean in this passage does God say to him Joshua you're a mess go find some water take off those horrible clothes, take a really good bath and put on the best clothes you can find and then come back and we'll talk. Not even remotely. See, Joshua in this passage is never the subject of any verb. Joshua doesn't do anything in this passage. He's passive. Things are being done to him and declared about him But he's just standing there. (laughs) After making it crystal clear to the accuser that Joshua has been chosen, plucked from the fire, the angel of Yahweh instructs his angelic servants to remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And then, finally, the Lord speaks directly to the defendant, to Joshua, and he says, He says what he says to every brand that he plucks from the fire. He says, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with royal robes. What did Joshua contribute to that transaction (laughs) to make himself clean in the eyes of God? Absolutely. What defense did Joshua present to exonerate himself? Did you notice if you read this passage that Joshua never says a word? He's the only individual in the passage who doesn't say anything. Even Zechariah, the observer, says, Okay, this is great. Now let's put a clean turban on his head. He's got the royal robes. But Joshua himself never says a word. Isaiah 53 verse 7 speaking of the suffering servant the coming Messiah says he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers so he did not open his mouth when Jesus fulfilling this same role of the high priesthood when he stood in our place bearing our guilt and our shame and our filthiness he didn't say a single word in his defense and it wasn't because he was indefensible it was because we were indefensible there was no defense for the guilt that he was bearing because it was our guilt He didn't come to excuse it. He didn't come to justify it. He didn't come to argue against the accusations against us. He came to take our sin away. If we read the Old Testament without paying close attention to passages like this, and there are several, we might be prone to conclude that things back then, and the law of Moses worked very differently when it came to how men get right with God. We might tend to conclude that the the way a man would enter or a woman would enter into right relationship with God would be by being a really good law keeper. But the pattern that's set forth in this passage is the exact same pattern that is set forth in the New Testament. How does Joshua start out? This man who represents the whole congregation of Israel in the eyes of God, does he start out clean or unclean? Unclean. Contrary to what our culture wants us to believe, men don't start out good. What case is Satan chomping at the bit to make in the presence of God regarding this man who is being judged? That he's unclean and disqualified to stand in the presence of God. Is that a legitimate claim? Is that a legitimate accusation or an illegitimate accusation? Well, there are two angles on that. It's legitimate because it's true, and it's illegitimate because God has already decreed that he will cleanse the man who is being tried. On what basis does God rebuke the accuser? Is his argument based on Joshua's merit? Not at all. Who in this vision is 100% responsible for the change that moves Joshua from being utterly and wretchedly unclean and disqualified from standing in the presence of God to being clean and made worthy to stand in the presence of God. It's all God. It, just look at the passage. You won't find anyone else who's acting to bring about that cleansing. This isn't a deal. This is a gift. And this isn't a new paradigm for God's dealings with men. This is how it's always been. Isaiah 52 and 53 that I mentioned before speaks of one God calls my servant. And God's going to refer to that same one in verse 8 of this same chapter of Zechariah. My servant. And that great passage in Isaiah 52 and 53 says that God's servant bore the sins of God's people on himself he paid a debt that he didn't owe so we could be eternally freed from a debt that we couldn't pay it would take us an eternity to pay it so I want you to answer this question out loud together what can wash away your sin amen if that strikes anybody as corny that's tough it strikes me as profound. What do you bring to the table if you desire to be accepted into the holy presence of God? <laughs> you bring your filthiness. You bring your utter disqualification to stand anywhere near our holy God. You were defiled before God with nothing whatsoever to offer Him that merits His favor and with everything that merits his condemnation the wages of sin what we have earned by our sin is death and that death is eternal Ephesians 2 says that until God made us alive in Jesus Christ we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we're all by nature children of wrath that means we were all deserving of only one thing and that's the wrath of God you know how to recognize a false religion in less than 30 seconds? Just ask the person who's presenting it what he actually deserves. And his answer will tell you a whole lot. If he says, well, I've lived pretty well. You know, sometimes I've messed up and struggled. But by and large, I think, I think I'm think i going to pass the test when I stand before God. Or would I be... And, you know, when it's my time to become one with the universal essence or to go to nirvana or whatever it is, right? I think, I think I've think i done pretty well. My karma is pretty good. I, You know, if it's 51%, uh, it's on the righteous side, right? If you get any of those answers, you know that that religion is false. If he says, well, I don't deserve anything, he's on the right track. If he says I deserve only Condemnation From the hand of God He's got it exactly right Some of you in this room Come from cultures in which The prevalent religion Is Hinduism or Buddhism Or Confucianism or Islam You or your parents Or your grandparents May have come to this country Thinking that America Was a Christian country And if that's What you thought of America Let me challenge your understanding Because most of what is represented As Christianity in America Fails the same simple test That all of those man-made religions fail Most of what is called Christianity In this country Asserts that we bring something To the table Something to commend us before God And that is perhaps the most fatal lie of all because it convinces people that they don't really need the only one who can make them worthy to stand before God. And it leaves them right where they started. (laughs) Filthy, lost, and dead. You'll never be clean in the eyes of God as long as you're clinging to something that you have to give to him. Never. Your salvation will never be about what you can do to impress God. It is always and only about what God has done for you. Now, in the second half of the vision, we turn from the high priest representing the people to the high priest representing God. In verses 6 and 7, God lays out Joshua's earthly assignment as his high priest, cleansed by God's doing and ready to represent God in the eyes of God's people. Now that he's been made clean by God, Joshua's assignment is the oversight of the place of worship, the temple. And God tells him, I will grant you to come and go among those who are standing here. And I believe... As Meryl Unger says, I believe that this is the, this is the angelic beings that took the dirty clothing off and put the clean clothing on. This is his, this is God's faithful angels. Now that image of the high priest coming in and going out in the presence of God, in the company of God's angels, that wasn't a new image to Joshua or Zechariah. If you look at the description of the of the temple and of the tabernacle before it, what was embroidered on the curtains all around when the priest stepped through the screen into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but into the holy place before the presence of God, which was inside the veil? What was on those curtains? Cherubim. Images of the angelic beings who guard the, the holiness of God. And I think this is just a foreshadowing of what we find in the descriptions of the heavenly city, New Jerusalem. Because in that city, in Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21, 22, you find men dwelling in the presence of God with angels. I don't know what that's going to be like, but i got a lot of questions for Michael and Gabriel. I don't know if I get to ask them. There will be a lot of time. Verses 6 and 7 is a conditional statement. The removal of Joshua's sin was a one-way transaction. Joshua didn't have anything to do with it. God did it all. But now that God has declared him clean, God tells him that he'll put him to use to oversee the temple if Joshua walks in God's ways. And the same principle applies to us who have trusted in Jesus Christ and have been cleansed from our sin and made righteous and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. If we're going to be useful to God, which is why he saved us, we don't get to go back and explore the bottom of the porta potty. We can't undo God's choosing or God's cleansing work, but we can render ourselves useless. And that's not why he said this. Verses eight through ten move from the, the kind of near term earthly assignment of Joshua in representing God to the people to the longer view. Of that same task, that same role. Something amazing is going on in verses 8 through 10. It takes the promises in this passage way beyond the priestly calling and assignment that God had entrusted to Joshua, and it starts talking about someone else. In verses 8 and 9, God says straight up that Joshua and his friends are a symbol, a sign. Pointing to something else, to something greater. A sign of what? Well, God immediately answers that question. Joshua and his friends are a foreshadowing of God's intention to bring in the one he calls my servant, the branch. And Zechariah wasn't in a vacuum when he heard that term because that had already been established. Isaiah and Jeremiah also spoke of this one God calls the branch. Isaiah chapter 4, turn there if you would, Isaiah 4, follows a passage in Isaiah 3 that warns of God's judgment against the women of Judah because they had proudly and immodestly covered themselves with all kinds of external adornment, gaudy and seductive adornment. At the end of chapter 3, God says in verse 24, Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. you got to love that word. <laughs> instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. God is going to bring down the pride and the self-indulgence of the women of Judah so that they will be left with nothing but utter disgrace. But immediately after that declaration of this coming judgment and humiliation against the daughters of Zion, God speaks of his redeeming work that he will bring about and he says he will wash away the filth of those women. And the word filth in Isaiah 4 is the same word that Zechariah used of Joshua's clothing. He will wash away the excrement that covers these beautifully adorned women. And then he says in Isaiah 4 verse 2, in that day, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth will be the pride and adornment of the survivors of Israel. What a shift. Instead of, instead of women glorying in the the beauty that they cover themselves with they glory in the beauty and majesty of the one God has sent who is called the branch and instead of being prideful about themselves it says the pride and adornment of the remnant of the survivors of Israel will be the fruit of the earth it will be God's abundant provision that he has given to them the only one who will be getting any praise is God not men It won't be the bling. It'll be the branch. Verse 3 says, It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. That means it's going to hurt getting there. I point out that beautiful passage in Isaiah because it has a very strong connection with what we're looking at in the second half of Zechariah 3, in the last three verses of Zechariah 3. I mentioned that the word filth used in both passages is the same. The cleansing that is promised in Isaiah 4 is connected with the exaltation of the one that God calls the branch of Yahweh. And that's the same same image that's presented in Zechariah. When God takes away the iniquity of the land, it will be when he brings in the branch. When it's taken in context, Isaiah 4, like Zechariah 3, equates filth with sin. It equates something that you would observe on the outside with what's actually on the inside, which is iniquity in the heart That's what makes us really repulsive to God. That's what makes us irreversibly, incurably repulsive to God. We can wash the filth off the outside of our bodies, but that's not the problem. In the the law, in the Old Testament law, that was was a temporary disqualification. And there was was a, a process by which you could be made clean. But the filth in our hearts, there's only one cure for that. And in both passages, Isaiah 4, Zechariah 3, the accused does nothing to bring about his or her own cleansing. Nothing at all. It is God alone who cleanses and redeems. Those whom Isaiah says, God's true Isaiah says, are recorded for life in Jerusalem. That means their names were written down somewhere to live in the city where God will dwell. When were those names written? Before the foundation. of Jeremiah speaks of this righteous branch as well. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 16. Just listen to this. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in security. And this is the name by which she shall be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. This branch that God tells Zechariah he's going to bring in is Jesus Christ, the perfect man the perfect priest, the perfect king in the line of David, the messenger of Yahweh who goes by the name Yahweh. And right after his promise to bring in this exalted servant, (laughs) the branch himself who is standing in front of Joshua shows Zechariah a, a stone that he's setting before Joshua. And on that stone are seven eyes. And if you look in the next chapter in Zechariah 4.10, those eyes are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Now, don't lose too much sleep over that image. As I see it, the number seven is consistently the number of God, the number of perfection. And the image of God's eyes ranging to and fro throughout the earth pictures God's perfect omniscience and imminence. That means there is nothing hidden from God's sight and there is nothing hidden from God's hand. He sees everything and he intervenes in all of the affairs of men. God also declares that he's going to put an inscription on that same stone. He doesn't explicitly say what that inscription will be. But the next thing he does say is I will remove the iniquity of that land in a single day. Now, if you look at the battles in the Old Testament, you come to see that the most decisive battle is the battle that's won in a single day. Y'all remember the story of David and Goliath, right? 1 Samuel 17. Here's this this boy, probably the least in stature of all his brothers, the one that God has chosen to be his anointed king, but he's not king yet. And this shepherd boy goes up against a giant named Goliath. And behind Goliath is the whole Philistine army. <laughs> and so Goliath says, why are you taunting me with sticks? He says, Goliath says to David, I'm going to feed you your carcass to the birds and the beasts. And David then turns to him and says You come to me with a sword A spear and a javelin But I come to you In the name of Yahweh of hosts The God of the armies of Israel Whom you have taunted And then he says This day The Lord will deliver you up into my hands And I will strike you down And I will remove your head from you And I will give the dead bodies Of the army of the Philistines This day to the birds of the sky and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. And that of course is exactly what happened in a single day. So it was with God's victory over sin. That victory was one, and we talked about it this morning, it was one at the cross. Colossians two fifteen, Paul says, When God, after he says that the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us that was hostile toward us, was nailed to the cross, he says, When God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through Christ. Christ was publicly displayed on a cross and I'm sure Satan was gloating and thinking this is great we're done with him and then three days later he was raised from the dead, and the victory was his that was the greatest and most decisive single day victory the world has ever known but I believe God's also drawing Zechariah's attention to a single day victory that is yet future that follows and depends follows from and depends on that the day when God will remove every remnant of sin from his land and his city and his people so that he may come and dwell right in the midst of that city together with those who are his redeemed. And that purging and refining judgment that God will execute through the one called the branch will bring about the removal of sin. It will be grievously painful And Zechariah talks about it later in this book, that judgment. That cleansing will result in a final and perfect conclusion. And after that day, nobody will ever stand in the place of God's dwelling except those who have been forever cleansed by the blood of his beloved son because those are the only ones that can stand where God is standing. The curse will be all gone and Jesus... Is the one who does it all. Now, this vision is amazing to me. It's just it's astounding. It's in it you have the angel, the messenger of Yahweh, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, speaking with a man named Joshua who is foreshadowing him. He's foreshadowing Yahweh, who will come down from heaven as a man and who will become our perfect high priest. That's all been accomplished now. If we see nothing else in this powerful passage, and there's a lot to see, I pray that we will see that when it comes to our redemption, when it comes to our cleansing in the eyes of God, Jesus does it all. Not most of it, all of it. At every point in this vision, that the prophet Zechariah saw more than 500 years before Jesus came in the flesh. At every point, Joshua, Yehoshua, whose name means Yahweh is salvation, foreshadows Jesus Christ, Yeshua, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one mediator. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. God represents the Father to us because he is God's perfect high priest. And he represents the Father to us perfectly. Jesus said, you want to know the Father? Look at me. At the cross, Jesus represented us before the Father. And he represented us perfectly. In him there was no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. There was no violence that he had done. He's not just our advocate. He is our substitute. He stood where Joshua stood at the beginning of this vision, covered in our uncleanness. He took our filth upon himself. He uttered not a word in his own defense because he was standing in our place, and we had no defense. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. How? In him. He removed our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west, and he clothed us us with a beautiful, white, spotless righteousness that was not our own because we don't have any clothed us with his righteousness he advocated for us when we were lost and dead in our sins and he advocates for us now even now he is our perfect high priest every accusation hurled against us day and night by the accuser of the brethren falls on the one who ever lives to make intercession for those whom he has redeemed read Hebrews 7 verses 23-24 to If you belong to Jesus Christ through faith in him alone, you can be confident that every time Satan makes an accusation against you, the answer that he gets back from our faithful high priest is, this one is mine. I have plucked him from the fire and he belongs to me. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one and only Savior, I pray that today will be the day of your salvation. He alone is the judge of all mankind. He alone has the authority and the worthiness to judge you. Your problem isn't ultimately the accusations of Satan against you. Your problem is that those accusations are true. Only Jesus is worthy to stand in your place and pay the eternal penalty that you deserve. And that's exactly what he did when he died on the cross. If you're here today and you have not believed in the one and only Redeemer, I pray that you will do so today. I pray with all my heart. Dear Father, this amazing picture that you set before Zechariah is As marvelous and as beautiful to us today As it it was to him then And we get the full story Because we We have beheld What you have declared About the cross and the resurrection The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ And those men Who knew him And walked with him And who saw him after he was raised from the dead Proclaimed him As the perfect son of God perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, the coming king, the one who is our all in all. Father, may we fall down at his feet and proclaim him Savior and Lord. And may we live accordingly, we pray it in Jesus' precious name.